Good evening, all y'all. Father Kelly here. Now, I always intend to record my homilies, but rarely does it actually happen. However, this weekend, I got a number of compliments on the homily, and, in fact, one or two specific requests to record it, so I will. So, uh, even though we're already now past the fourth Sunday of Advent, this is my homily for the fourth Sunday of Advent. As I've referenced from time to time lately here at the parish, and referring to the parish council, uh, we are talking about, here at St. Eugene's, doing some things to update the sanctuary, namely the floor and the lighting, but some other things some other things as well. This has led me to a curiosity about how things used to be, about what this church was like in the very beginning, what it looked like in you know Easter 1960 when it was dedicated. And by the way, if you have any pictures from that era, I'd be very interested I've never seen anything before the mid-70s so far. I didn't find any pictures yet, but we have found some of the architectural drawings, uh, some of the you know, blueprints from the very beginning. So it's been, it's been fascinating to check those out and you know, see. It's just the basic. There's got to be more out there, but at least we have uh, the basic floor plan and some specific diagrams about how the steel beams go together and how some of the other layout parts work. So it's very fascinating to see. Uh, but for those who uh, maybe aren't familiar, I want to give a little background of this church before we even get to the construction. So the parish, the parish in sort of the capital sense, was first in Hydro, and Weatherford was the mission of Hydro. But in, I think, the 40s or 50s, the parish, which was Immaculate Conception, in Hydro burned down. So that only left what was the Mission Parish, actually called St. James, which used to exist over south of the uh, Weatherford campus somewhere. We don't have the property of the building anymore. They're long since gone. Um, it left left St. James as the only parish in town, the only parish in the area, the only church in the area. And so what seems to have happened is that they, they kind of looked around and realized that Weatherford was growing, but Hydro wasn't. So rather than restore the parish in Hydro, and have whether we keep being a mission, which would have sort of put things backwards in terms of, of town size, they went ahead and made, you know, made a new parish, uh, Saint Eugene, uh, named after well Pope Saint Eugene the first technically, but in a practical sense, Bishop Eugene McGinnis, who was uh, big in helping many um, well, bishops of the diocese, who is important and uh, but well known as a bishop for helping. Uh, what is it, Catholic Extension Society, helping uh, churches around the country be built who otherwise uh, couldn't afford to build a church at all. So, um, named after Pope St. Eugene, but who's the patron of Bishop Eugene McGinnis, so there's a connection there. Same thing with uh, St. Eugene Church in Oklahoma City, uh, same same reasoning there. Anyways, so they got together and decided on a church and began, of course, to uh, plan the church, and that's where the blueprints and the architectural designs come from. The earliest ones have 1955 on them. So obviously there was a period of planning that came in before the actual church came to be built. Someone had to decide, some ones, probably, that we need to make this happen and let's begin to take steps to make it happen. So they had to decide to build a house for God and for the people to worship God, for the sake of the people to adore the Lord. God doesn't need anything from us technically. He isn't changed by our worship of him. Uh, but it is good for God to have a house so that we have a place 
to worship the Lord. And it's about something more than just uh, the bricks and the stone, though. In this particular case, there is, you know, brick, stone, steel, carpet, pews, whatever, and that makes up the physical building. And that physical reminder is important. We, we do, in many ways, uh, need that place, at least in a general sense, need a place to pray. And, and the solidity of the building, the beauty of the building, reminds us of the solidity and the beauty of the faith, right? But it's about more than that. It's not just the building. If, God forbid, the physical church were gone tomorrow, we would still have the parish of St. Eugene Catholic Church. The building might not be there, but the people of the parish, the, the, the body of Christ, the community of believers, is also part of the parish beyond just the physical building. In the first reading from this Sunday, King David decides that it's not appropriate that he is dwelling in a house of cedar and the Ark of God, God's presence itself, analogous to the tabernacle that we have in the church with the body of Christ present, is dwelling in a tent. And he literally means a tent. Uh, think of, you know, uh, a big tent you would have for like an outdoor wedding reception or something like that. Uh, you know, a, a big sort of outdoor event tent, um, canvas, that kind of thing. That's what David is talking about. Whereas, you know, God is in that and he is in a real building. So there's there's a genuine piety there that, that he sort of recognizes, you know, God's house should be a little nicer. If I'm going to be in this nice house, it seems odd that it seems um, you know, rude and appropriate or something like that, uh, that God's house is, that God's living in a tent, right? Now, uh, it's a general principle, I think, that, going on that same line of what David was thinking, that the church should be at least as nice as our own homes. So if our houses are, are well-maintained with up-to-date fixtures and furnitures and things like that, um, not that we have to constantly be renovating the church necessarily, but uh, if our houses are nice and the church is falling apart, that's a problem. So sort of a sidebar, there's something that I thought about, like, oh, yeah, that, that's sort of a, a comparable thing, makes sense to keep those things in the proper order. But anyways, it is, you know, what, what David, his idea is, it's not bad, um, even though we might read it that way. The, the way God responds, it could sound like kind of a passive-aggressive, like, what are you thinking, David, kind of response. Uh, I don't think God is offended that David wants to build a better house for him. Um, it's certainly a pious intention. But God's answer to David is rather surprising. He says, thus says the Lord, God speaking to David, should you build me a house to dwell in? It was I who took you from the pasture and from the care of the flock to be the commander of my people Israel. I planted them so that they may dwell, the people of Israel, that they may dwell without further disturbance. God is saying, yes, David, that's very nice that you want to build me a physical house, but I'm the one who cared for you and has built up this people into the house of God. That it is God's family that has been built up in the, in a way much bigger than the physical building that David was talking about. You know, God is emphasizing to David, the stones that you want to put up are not actually the important thing. In fact, I am going to build a house, God says, to make my name and comparably and connectedly your name endure for all generations. And that is what we have 
continuing the church today. And it's what Jesus is born into as well as the child of Mary. Whenever the angel promises that Jesus will sit on the throne of David, his ancestors, that's what he's talking about. He's It's the house of David in the, in the capital H sense house that endures through the centuries, that, that carries on, that Jesus is head of that house. And it's that same house that we, the church, are part of as well. As the body of Christ, we are the continuation of that expectation of the people of Israel of the building of the house of God. But being part of this is an active role. The house of David, the church, as the Lord promises, will continue, but it is not automatic on the local level. The whole church of God will never fail. The house of David will never fail, but the local church can Look at Europe, for example. It used to be an entire it used to be entirely Catholic, but now the churches are more or less completely empty. Why? The people didn't move away. There's still plenty of people in Europe. It is because they failed to remember and to recognize the presence and the coming of Christ. If we really understand Jesus, if we really love him, we will be doing everything possible to receive him. But anywhere the local church fails, and this is, you know, ignoring famines, disasters, you know, the town population literally going away, barring those unusual circumstances. Anywhere the local church fails, you can be sure that even though the wooden bricks didn't fall down, the faith of the people did. And so we are left with a question, especially as we come to the end of Advent and Christmas, the end of Advent and Christmas coming. What is our understanding of our faith. What is the important what is our understanding of the importance of the presence of Christ? Do we come to his church because it's our family habit or do we recognize that we are part of the house of God, the, the house that he himself has built and that we need the savior on whom the house is built? If we want a local church that is more than just an older generation that has stubbornly stuck around and to be clear, praise God for that older generation, we need you. But our parish can't be just that group. If we want a parish full of kids, teenagers, young families, middle-aged folks, and those elders, then it is important that we recognize that supreme place of Christ in our lives. The reality is that Christ is coming. An Advent, but also every day, whether we are ready for it or not. But the question further is, does that matter to our lives? You know, these last few months you've been bombarded with advertisements reminding you to buy everything because Christmas is coming. But all of those things are meaningless compared to Jesus. Christ is coming. He wants to build the house he promised to build for David. That house that will last forever. But it is our choice to recognize that and be part of that building not just the brick and the wood and the stone and the flooring and the pews and what have you. We need those things. But to be part of the building of faith, ourselves and our families. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, which we have the gospel for this Sunday, I assure you that she was terrified. An angel is not the hallmark figurine that we often imagine them as. To see an angel of God, to see an archangel, Gabriel, 
would be an absolutely terrifying experience. Yeah, there's a reason that most people in Scripture, when they encounter God, their 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 follow up is, "Am I dead?" or "I can't believe that I'm not dead." Because to see God is because we are sinful, fallen humanity. To see the perfect Almighty God or His Messenger is a moment of supreme fear. And so, you bet, Mary was not just having a casual chat with the angel. It was a moment of beauty and peace because Mary is holy and God is uh, God is loving. But also, it was a moment of terror. And so, we all would have been terrified as well. Perhaps some of you are terrified now when Father is talking about these absolutes about the importance of faith. Or, you know, maybe well, the importance of faith... Um, you know, if we're, we're going to say that, as I am saying, that you know, Jesus is more important than than your hobbies and sports and things you like to do in your free time. Jesus is more important than your job. Jesus is more important than even your family. You know, that's what we're talking about when when Christ is coming and building building his kingdom. Is that level of priority? That's that's what he wants from us. That's what he asks from us. That's what he expects from us. And so to be talking about that, maybe that is terrifying, like Mary uh, Mary being terrified by the angel's presence. But also, maybe you, maybe you really do want to welcome Jesus in that way. Maybe you really do want him to be, you know, to, to approach that level of, yes, this, this is so important to me. But it might seem like a daunting thing. Like, how do, how do I get there, Father? This, yes, that sounds great to have Jesus be that important, to be that ready for him. But, but how do I get there? It's actually quite simple. Easier said than done, of course, but still simple. All we have to do is imitate Mary in her yes. Notice that she didn't wait for a full explanation of how her son would sit upon David's throne. She didn't ask for uh, the full story of how it was going to unfold that her son would be uh, the savior of the world. She simply started with yes. She said, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May be done to me according to your word. Christ is coming. Christ who is all important is coming. Christ who builds a house for us that endures for generations. That same Christ is coming. Let us imitate Mary's yes and receive him. Then the promised house that the house then the house that God has promised will continue to be built up. Will be continue to be built up. Now that concludes the homily, but after the homily, somebody asked me uh, what somebody asked me about Mary's yes, and she did say yes, and all went well. But there is also technically a question there. She says, "How can this be? For I have no relations with a man." Okay, a fair question, obviously. But then that raises a question in us. Well, wait a minute. How come when Mary asks a question, it's fine, but when Zechariah asks a question of the angel, who Gabriel came to him to announce the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah basically said, well, here, I have it pulled up on the screen. Zechariah says, um, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. A reasonable question, it seems. Mary asks a seemingly similar question. Zachariah gets in trouble for it and is, is mute until John the Baptist is born, but Mary's not in trouble at all. I mean, the first answer that, how do we know that Mary wasn't, um, 
wasn't doubting like Zachariah was, well, because she's Mary and she's sinless and so obviously she wasn't, well, okay, yes, that's true, but that's not very sa- really a satisfying answer. Because if just at a, at a plain textual level, it is kind of a head scratch of like, well, they seem to say pretty much the same thing. So why is one of them in trouble and the other one's not? Beyond just, well, Mary is sinless, so she obviously, even though it sounds the same, hers wasn't a sin, but his was. But that's not, that's not a satisfying answer, right? True as it may be. So there's got to be a little bit more to that. So with some footnotes and help from, from my seminary classmates, I want to say a little bit more about that. Basically, what it comes down to is that Zachariah's question really was a doubt. Basically, he's saying to the angel, look, man, we've been trying, me and my wife. It's not working, so I don't know what you're going to do. Right? He, he has doubt of God's power to do this. Whereas Mary... Her, her question is more of a wonder, wondering out loud of, wow, how is this going to be since I don't have relations with a man? Parentheses unspoken, but I know God will take care of it. You know, there, there's a tradition that Mary took a vow of virginity even before she got married to Joseph. So she would have, in a sense, seen this coming, uh, you know, Mary, of course, is especially prepared and you know, conceived of that original sin. And so, um, not that she received like divine revelation necessarily, um, but her understanding of the angel's words are a much truer understanding than Zechariah. Zechariah hears it and sort of says, you know, again, all right, man, like, I don't know what you mean because that doesn't make any sense to me. He's He's only thinking in a worldly way. Again, like, look, it hasn't happened so far. Why would it happen now? But Mary, on the other hand, is in a sense already prepared for this. Of course, by her sinlessness, but also by uh, her her vow of virginity and her um, her whole spiritual life of preparation. Uh, she, in a sense, knows this kind of thing is coming. Maybe not in, in a literal way where she could have, you know, called it by the date and time. Um, but she was prepared for the Lord's message. So when the angel says... You will conceive and bear a son and name him Emmanuel. Her question to the Lord, to the angel of how can this be, is really, we should put an exclamation mark in there too, I think, that it's a, it's a wow, you know, I know what, I know what I'm about, that I've made this vow and I know the Lord will provide. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that a marvelous thing that even though here is my state in life, the Lord is going to make these awesome things happen. So Mary's acceptance of the angel's words is a lot different than Zachariah's and therefore uh, thus the difference. So it is it is a, a reasonable question. Actually, when I was preaching it the first time for the, through the homily, as I said, you know, the part about saying yes, as Mary does, I kind of wondered that in my head. And then, and then someone asked me after mass, like, you know what, let's look into that. So I admit it's not a stone cold in the text obvious answer. But it's one of those things that, um, remember, Scripture is not a police report, to put it that way. It's not a factual accounting of details to satisfy every curiosity. No, it's a narrative story. And so we're allowed to infer, and in this case properly so, that 
though they sound similar, because the angel scolded Zechariah, effectively, and didn't scold Mary, there is something different about their response, their, their, dis, their dispositions. Even though it's not spelled out for us in the text, uh, we don't have to have all of our questions spelled out verbatim and word for word in the text, because the Bible would be a billion pages long that way and still wouldn't satisfy. Uh, so it's not trying to be an analytical textbook uh, like we sometimes like to interpret it as. But it's, if we engage it with faith, if we, if we engage the question about Mary's yes versus Zachariah's wishy-washy kind of yes, uh, we can understand the difference. With the eyes of faith, it makes sense. Still an interesting question, and uh, I'm not saying that I've exhausted the topic by no means. There's probably whole books written on this. Um, but maybe that can give a little bit of an insight about what is going on with the two different accounts. In the end, though, the important thing is that, like we should, Mary said yes to God. That was the simple part. She just began by saying yes, and that made everything that made everything else work out. So, thank you for listening. Hope this was helpful. It was interesting. Um, pray for me that I can uh, do more recordings, both homilies and otherwise, in the future, because people seem to enjoy this by the grace of God, and uh, it's good for me too to to think things out and. Uh, you know, you, we learn by teaching so often. So uh, pray for me that this kind of thing can become more frequent and more successful. God bless. See you later. Bye.